after our fun song. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Oh, no. (laughs) Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Once you enter the land that I am giving you, the land must celebrate a Sabbath rest to the Lord. You will plant your fields for six years and prune your vineyards and gather their crops for six years. But in the seventh year, the land will have a special Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You must not plant your fields or prune your vineyards. You must not harvest the secondary growth of your produce or gather the grapes of your freely growing vines. It will be a year of special rest for the land. Whatever the land produces during its Sabbath will be your food for you, for your male and female servants, and for your hired laborers and foreign guests who live with you, as well as for your livestock and for the wild animals in your land. All of the land's produce can be eaten. Count off seven weeks of years, that is, seven times seven, so that the seven weeks of years total 49 years. Then have the trumpet blown on the 10th day of the seventh month. Have the trumpet blown throughout your land on the day of reconciliation. You will make the 50th year holy, proclaiming freedom throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It will be a jubilee year for you. Each of you must return to your family property and to your extended family. The 50th year will be a jubilee year for you. Do not plant, do not harvest the secondary growth, and do not gather from the freely growing vines, because it is a jubilee. It will be holy for you. You can eat only the produce directly out of the field. Each of you must return to your family property in this year of jubilee. When you sell something to or buy something from your fellow citizen, you must not cheat each other. You will buy from your fellow citizen according to the number of years since the jubilee. He will sell to you according to the number of years left for harvests. You will raise the price if there are more years or lower the price if there are less years because it is the number of harvests that are being sold to you. You must not cheat each other, but fear your God because I am the Lord your God. You will be, or you will observe my rules, and you will keep my regulations, and do them so that you can live securely on the land. The land will give its fruits, so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. Suppose you ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't plant or gather our crops then? I will send my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will make enough produce for three years. You can plant again in the eighth year and eat food from the previous year's produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes, you will eat the food from the previous year. Leviticus 25, 1 through 22. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. Uh, can we just get another little round of applause for the band and the uh, lovely Bruno Mars? Uh, you know, I have to tell you, I have to confess something. I had a little, like, when we got to that second verse and mentioned sex in church. <laughs> Anybody else with me? And I know it's a pop song, but, like, and I knew it was coming, too, and I still... If anyone else felt like that with me, I just want to highlight for you what we're doing after this series is done. 
We have a series coming up this summer that we're going to debut right after Pride called Pure Trash, Putting Purity Culture Where It Belongs. And so we are going to be examining the ways that some of the unhealthy tendencies in our efforts towards purity and sexual ethics have actually kind of turned inward on themselves and made us disconnected from the gift of sex and our bodies and our relationships. So I am really looking forward to that. I know I need it, um, and I'm really hoping that we as a community can do some healing uh, and, and, and work towards then building a new sexual ethic, a new queer-informed feminist holy, body-loving sexual ethic that is biblical and good. So uh, stay tuned for that. But the other thing about that song, the Bruno Mars song, is that uh, if you haven't guessed, we are talking today about rest. I love that song. I love whistling to myself anytime I have a day off. (laughs) Be like, I don't feel like doing anything. John Mulaney has uh, a joke about how, like, if you... If you talk to, like, kids and they, uh, they don't have something going on, a lot of times kids will say, like, I'm so bored. Or, I'm not doing anything. But often if you talk to adults and you're like, hey, what do you have going on this weekend? Or what did you do this weekend? And they go, nothing. I did nothing at all. And it's, like, the greatest news. <laughs> it's the most satisfying thing, probably in part because it's so rare. Now, We are in this series of parties. We've been in a season of celebration in light of Easter. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave, the the victory over sin and death, calls us to be a people of celebration and resurrection. And so we've been going through all these different parties. Now, I know that that Leviticus text, again, another thing that causes a lot of us to kind of like, Leviticus, but that Leviticus text is like dry and long, and I'm so sorry, I don't fault you if any of you just like tuned about 20 of those 22 verses out, but we are going to unpack them today, because believe it or not, that is again the description for a massive party. There is the the word celebrate. When you enter the land that I'm giving you, the land must celebrate a Sabbath rest. Now we can talk soon uh, as well about what it means for the land itself to celebrate, But this is the entry into this idea of Sabbath, the framework of celebration. Rest is a party. Rest is a celebration. That's why we call today Snooze Fest, because we mean it. It's not actually about tuning out and being bored, but actually celebrating the slowness of the here and now. This is actually really radical in our day and time. And I'm going to resource you guys a lot today. I have a bunch of books. We'll get to them. Another plug for the squad page. I will post all of these to the squad page if folks are interested afterwards. So if you, if you don't catch it or don't write it down during the sermon, that's fine. We'll resource you later. But one of the things that I think folks can do, especially all of you online um, right now, if you haven't done so yet, is to immediately start following on Instagram or Twitter or both the NAP ministry. Anybody here love the nap ministry? Yes. If you're not aware of the nap ministry, it is an incredible, incredible ministry started by Trisha Hersey, who is um, also known as the nap bishop. She's a black woman in Atlanta, and she's been doing incredible work 
pushing back against grind culture, hustle culture, and capitalism to root us in our bodies. And she hosts napping sessions, that people come to worship by napping, by resting. And this is holy and good because the scriptures tell us that one way to celebrate, one way to worship, one way to be in connection with God is to rest. In any case, I love, I love what the Nat Ministry puts out. They have Instagram posts that are breaking down the, the specifics of hustle culture. Um, they have uh, just little encouragements and reminders. A couple gems are rest is resistance, simply. You are not a machine, stop grinding. And one of my favorites, divest from capitalism, lay your ass down. <laughs> She's got a book coming out this October that I'm really excited for. It's called Rest as Resistance, a Manifesto. And so I really encourage you to check her work out on social, but also pre-order her book. But why is this so radical? Why is laying down with a group of people and simply closing your eyes, attuning to your body, and perhaps, yes, even falling asleep, a radical act of faith? Well, we are commanded. We are commanded by God to rest. This is fundamental. It's, it's among the first things that the people of Israel are, are instructed to do when they leave captivity and are working towards, walking towards the promised land. They get the Ten Commandments. And one of those foundational commandments is Sabbath rest. Now, Sabbath in our culture is, is kind of a, a strange idea. Christians often don't really pay a whole lot of attention to it. It's, it's a nice thing in spiritual guides or like, oh, if I'm, if I'm going to be particularly spiritual this year or this season, maybe I'll practice Sabbath. But it's something that is so outside of our norms that we have to intentionally work it in, right? And if we do talk about rest, how many of us are thinking of it as a spiritual practice, as a mandate by God? Now, rest and Sabbath are linked, but they are not the same. First plug, this book of essays, posthumous posthumously released, written by Rachel Held Evans, has a great one on Sabbath. Um, and in this book, Wholehearted Faith, she talks about how Sabbath is rest, but not all rest is Sabbath. Now, we are working as a culture, secular culture, is trying to encourage self-care and rest at some level. But the extent to which it is Sabbath depends on how radical that rest is and for whom that rest is offered. Rachel reflects on growing up and her family did have a sense of Sabbath, particularly around Sunday. They tried not to work on Sunday after church, even to the point of not wanting to cook. So they would go, they'd grab fried chicken, or they'd go out to a Chinese restaurant. And it wasn't until her adulthood that Rachel reflected on that, saying, my rest, my family's rest, depended intimately on the labor of others. And that rest is not Sabbath if it is unequal, if it contributes to inequality, if the only way for some to rest is for others to never rest and to always labor. That is the difference between rest and Sabbath. Rest is for some. Sabbath is for all. Now, when we break down those instructions, the land 
the animals, the children, the adults, even enslaved peoples and peoples from other nations were allowed and commanded to rest in the Sabbath. In God and Empire, another gem, John Dominic Crossan summarizes this by saying that the Sabbath itself was, a, was the justice of equality as the crown and climax of creation itself. You see, the roots of Sabbath go back to creation. God labored and labored and labored and rested. On the seventh day, there is no, and there was day and there was night. There is only rest. We know that God rested and that God created us in God's image not only to co-create, which we talk about a lot here, right? We talk about the labor of justice. We talk about the labor of the kingdom. We talk about being workers for the kingdom and building heaven on earth through God's help, commandment, instruction. But I think that we fail sometimes to talk enough about rest. This is some of the already and not yet tension of living in the world as it is. That the world as it is demands labor, but God's economy... The kingdom that is here and now and coming calls for rest. And in fact, rest is an act of worship. Now, a lot of us think of Sabbath as Sunday or Saturday, and it's rest so that we can worship, right? We think of, okay, let's not work so that we can worship. And that's something that we often think of when we think of Sabbath versus rest, But Sabbath is not about resting in order that we may worship. Sabbath is about worship as rest, rest as worship. Sabbath is about saying that laying down your productivity, being fully present to one another and God, these things are holy, whether you crack a Bible or walk into a church or not. That the act of disengaging from productivity culture, from the market, is a holy and courageous and empire-crushing act. Because we believe that, right? We believe that everything that we do that is faithful to God, everything that we do that is faithful to the Lord, undermines Caesar, right? Undermines empire. Because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. In the unkingdom of God, We topple these structures of oppression and evil, not only by actively, actively engaging to dismantle them, but also by stopping to rest, to be. Now, you may have heard me talk about the word zao a few times if you've been around here a minute. It is our name for a reason. It's a Greek word. It's from the scriptures, and it means to be among the living. We understand this as shorthand for what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be in the tradition of Jesus, to be fully alive, to be present. Now, we labor in the world so that all may have access to life, so that all may have access to rest. And also, we must never labor so long that we forget that we are called to be alive too. We labor so that we can rest, and then we rest because we can rest. How many of us rest only so that we can labor some more, so that we can labor harder? We rest just long enough to go out and work more without pausing to say, hey, maybe the point of all of this is to simply be, to be alive. To be alive and holy and present is an act of resistance. 
And yet, we come back to Rachel's critique, who has access? Who is able to just be? How do we build a Sabbath and not just rest for the privileged? Well, luckily, the instructions are right there in Scripture. (laughs) Now again, I know this was a long reading with a lot of technicalities, and some of it is like leasing agreements, and I get it. (laughs) But we're going to break it down, okay? So all of this comes from the concept of the seventh day of rest of God during creation, the Sabbath. But on the seventh day, all kinds of labor are to cease. And I think in our modern conception, we think of that as like, oh, I'm not supposed to go to work, right? We think about it as wage labor, because that's how capitalism defines labor for us. But God, kind of a call back to our Martha Mary conversation, God understands there are many kinds of labor, and not all of them are paid. This is to be a rest from all labor. Rest for the creatures of creation, not only human beings, but also animals, and in fact, for all of creation, including the land. Because in the same way that every seventh day we are called to lay down our productivity and simply be, every seventh year, the land is allowed to rest. You're not even supposed to farm the land. Now, you might be saying, "Um, that's going to be a real hungry year. But if you were able to hang till the end, God promises there will be enough. God says there will be enough in the sixth year to last you three years. I have got you. And a lot of us are like, yeah, that's really cute, God. But, you know, it gets hungry out here. And we see this as a pattern in Scripture. We know that the Israelites, when they were uh, on their way to the promised land, just coming out of captivity, were in need of food. And God rained down manna from heaven daily for them. Daily. But God said, I'm not going to rain this down on the seventh day because I don't even want you to have to gather it. I don't even want you to have to gather it. I'll give you double the day before. I will provide for you. And so what did they do? Did they say like, yes, I'm going to lay down my preoccupations, my worry, my stress, and God is going to provide for us because God has promised. And they fully rested in their spirits and bodies. Absolutely not. They hoarded and gathered as much as they could, and then overnight it rotted. It rotted. Now, this is a really important metaphor, and it's something that, like, that really sticks with me. But it wasn't until recently that I finally put together this text, the rotting manna, that, that God says basically, like, I will give you enough, and if you don't trust me, if you, if you go towards the logics of scarcity, if you try and create a surplus and excess more than you need, if you try and hoard wealth, it will rot. It took me until very recently to connect that to a passage that comes later in the book of James, which is ironic because it's one of my favorite passages. I actually have a tattoo about it. It says in the book of James, pay attention, you wealthy people. Weep and moan over the miseries coming upon you. Yikes. Here's the important part. Your riches have rotted. Moths have destroyed your clothes. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like fire. Consider the treasure you have hoarded in the last days. Listen. Hear the cries of the wages of your field hands. These are the wages you stole from those who harvested your fields. The cries of the harvesters 
have reached the ears of the Lord of heavenly hosts. That last part is what I have on here, right? The people crying out to God and God hearing. But how similar that is to say, not just the manna that I have given you, but also the wealth in your bank accounts, the gold and silver which cannot rust. They have rusted spiritually. And they testify against you in court because it exposes the gap between the abundance I have provided for you and the scarcity felt by those who don't have enough. Because the abundance was provided for all of you, but out of fear, out of anxiety, out of selfish preoccupation, some have hoarded too much. And now there is not enough to go around. Now there is not enough rest for all. And so, the things that I gave you, the abundance that you had, it rots. It rots. Crying out to be reunited with the people who don't have enough. And so, this Sabbath rest is truly radical. Because it is calling upon us to trust in the abundance of God. Not to engage in grind grind culture and hustle culture. Not to engage in the capitalist logics of endless expansion and accumulation. But actually to say, I have enough. We can have enough if none of us has too much. And frankly, all of this is ours to take care of, not ours to own. And this is the thing that I think is truly radical about this passage and this idea of Sabbath and Jubilee year, which is like, Ultra Sabbath. It is the idea that nobody actually owns any of this. Because on that seventh year, when they're not allowed to work the land, the people of God are also called to cancel debts. And then on the seventh, seventh year, after 50 years, all these sevens on sevens, seven's a real important number to God, every 50 years, Jubilee, which is can be understood as the redistribution of land wealth, but really it's the reordering back to the equal provision that God has provided. Because God originally distributed land to be stewarded, to be cared for in an equal way. And God knows that one of our sins as a people is to hoard, is to take. And that luck and circumstance and privilege and oppression will combine so that some end up with much And too many end up with too little. And so God said, well, good news, it's not yours anyway. And every couple of years, we're just going to have a reset, just a reset button. Because every seventh, seventh year, all that land goes right back to how I originally gave it to you. And anyone who is enslaved through debt, they're just going to be free, the end. And, And so it's like a mini thing happens every seven years. A major thing happens every seventh seven years. And all of this is rest. It's characterized as rest. But that radical rest is a reset button on production and accumulation. And and ironically, even though it feels like, oh, you can't produce, you can't do this, and there's like a scarcity fear in us when we read that, it's actually about provision. It's about God saying, I will reorder and provide for each and every one of you. There is rest for the land. There is rest for those in debt. There is rest from labor. And there is radical provision for all. Now, in this idea, 
It's that God owns the land. And this actually is in the scriptures. It says the land must not be permanently sold because the land is mine. The land must not be permanently sold because the land is God's. And so when we buy and sell, we are engaging with one another. We are working with one another for these resources. But God wants to remind us that we are not truly selling and buying. We are borrowing and caring for one another and for the land. And that it will go back and God gets to reset every seventh seven years. So basically, even in, so in some of that like fine print leasing agreement stuff, it's like, okay, so depending on where you are in the seven years, if you're towards the beginning of the seven years, it'll be more money, and towards the end of the seven years, it'll be less money. That's actually really important because basically, it is a leasing agreement saying you are leasing this land from God. And every seven years, it's going to reset. And so God's like, yeah, I totally get it. You're going to want to pay more if you get it towards the beginning of the jubilee, of the, of the jubilee cycle because you're only going to get so many harvests before, sorry, it's done, it's back to me. And I'm going to give it to everyone. So we have rest for the land, rest for the weary. Provisions for the land to go back to the people. And I just want to pause here for a moment, because again, this can feel very technical, like economic stuff that's like above our heads or whatever, but I just want you to think for a moment about the experience of indigenous people, the experience of black people, the experience of marginalized people and colonized people all over the world and how that relates to who controls the land. This is not just an intellectual or spiritual exercise. This is about setting things right and returning people to their relationship with the land. Not to say, hey, you will work this and extract, but to say, hey, you will rest alongside the land. And you can rest because this radical redistribution and provision means you will have enough. You will be confident in what you have because there is enough for all. There is enough for all. It can be really hard to imagine how this might work because this would totally upend our economy, right? I think that's one of the really important red flags for us that our economy is not a holy economy, that we literally couldn't follow the law of the Lord in our land without totally upending everything. But it is foundational. As I mentioned, it's in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment to rest is in the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting is that the Ten Commandments can kind of be broken down, right? Jesus explains to the people that all of the law is really functionally about loving God God and loving neighbor. And we see in the Ten Commandments laws about loving God and laws about loving neighbor. The first three are about God, no other gods before me, no idols, don't take my name in vain. We see then the five through ten about loving neighbor. Respect your parents, don't murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false testimony, do not envy. But the thing bridging them, the commandment in the middle of those two sets is the command to rest on the Sabbath. And some folks who have sat with this have really observed, like that is a true bridge. It is the the connection between Piety, following God, loving God, and holiness and justice, 
loving your neighbor. Sabbath is a principle. Sabbath is a practice. Sabbath is that anchor that connects our piety practice to justice. Now, don't get me wrong. People can get legalistic and and overly pietistic about Sabbath practice just like anything else, right? Aubrey Hendricks in The Politics of Jesus talks about the practice of Sabbath in the day of Jesus. And he talks about how the the piety uh, and the the focus on ritual and, um, and sort of exclusive devotion to that pietistic love of God practice of the Pharisees really was causing a lot of problems and really undermined the heart of the law because it disallowed for the love of neighbor. So, Basically, he said, in that time, the Pharisees were really legalistic about the Sabbath. They get into fights with Jesus about it. He's picking grains, and they're yelling at him. He's healing people. Anyway, Jesus, (laughs) different sermon. Jesus is really clear. The Sabbath is for the people. The people were not made for the law. The law was made for the people. And so if the Sabbath is serving the people, it is good and holy. But if the people are serving the Sabbath, something has gotten perverted and wrong. Uh, And the Pharisees have gotten really legalistic, saying no one can do any labor whatsoever on the Sabbath. But functionally in that society, there was such unequal distribution of wealth because, spoiler, they weren't actually practicing jubilee during this time either. There was such unequal wealth, unequal labor, that... While the wealthy could very easily just lay down their labor fully for a day a week, peasants, he says, who had daily chores that could not go undone, or a day laborer who did not eat if they didn't work. Side note, folks think that carpenter is like actually key for like day laborer, so that would have been Jesus. In effect, the Pharisees' Sabbath strictures valued ritual over actual human need. Now, in this way, Sabbath actually becomes an indictment. If we cannot fulfill the Sabbath as a people, right? We often reduce that to an individual. Are you getting your Sabbath? Are you honoring a Sabbath? If we, as a culture, cannot actually follow this command, cannot provide for the rest for all people, creatures, and the land, it is an indictment of our culture, our economy. And this is one of the inherent tensions within capitalism because John Maynard Keynes, one of the important figures in American capitalism, predicted a while ago that his grandkids would work just 15 hours a week. He's like, capitalism's so great, it's going to like move us on towards productivity, we're going to get so much done, we're going to accomplish so much that we can just stop working as much. But... This turned out to be pretty wrong. (laughs) NPR interviewed his grandkids, well, grandkids in his family tree, and they were working 50, 60, 70 hour weeks. This is wrong, his prediction was wrong because he failed to account for the the ever-expanding nature of capitalism, the accumulation principles of capitalism that say there is never enough. While the abundance of God says there is always enough, and if there is not enough, it is a distribution error, capitalism says there is never enough. We can always make more. We can always produce more. We can always extract more. 
And so under capitalism, we actually do more work than we need to, which may seem really strange for me to say, right? Because I know probably most of you here are saying like, I cannot find a way to survive by working less. I work as many hours as I can to get as many wages as I can to pay my bills and get by. But that's because, again, this is not an individual problem. It is a collective problem. Extractive capitalism is about surplus. It is about excess. It is about pulling the labor of the worker into creating excess. But where does that excess go? It is designed to go to shareholders. It is designed to go to capitalists, to the owners, and not to the workers. This is why, even though our country has seen massive economic growth over the decades, wages have stagnated. And even this very recent push in wages is having all kinds of panic about, oh, this is, this is what inflation, this is inflation, the heart of inflation is rising wages. Because the logics of capitalism say, we can keep extracting from employees, from wage laborers, and just keep putting it up the chain. This is the rest for the few at the expense of the rest of the many. It is coerced labor, especially among the poor, especially among poor people of color. We ought to live in a world where we can all rest, where we can all honor the Sabbath, and if we don't, that means that something has gone very, very wrong. In the book Sabbath as Resistance, Walter Brueggemann talks about Sabbath as a practice of exiting market ideology. And, and this is on every level, right? He talks about saying, like, I will exit the market ideology that says that my labor is needed at all times to survive, but also that my consumption is needed at all times. And these things are wildly linked. I will never forget a blog that I read once on The Economist that was about a person reflecting on his experience of working 60 hours a week versus not working at all. Now, this was an extremely privileged person. He had accumulated some wealth working those 60 hours a week. He was able to take some surplus. And then he saved up enough that he spent a year traveling and not working. And one of the things that he observed was how much less he consumed when he wasn't working. Not necessarily because he didn't have the money, but because he didn't have the need. He talked about working long hours and being so exhausted from labor that he didn't have it in him to cook a meal. And so he would spend more to get food made for him. He talked about being so tired evenings and weekends that resting wasn't enough. He needed to be entertained because he needed distraction from that exhaustion. And so he would pay to go to movies or to theme parks or, or wherever he went that cost money to engage him. Versus when he took the year off, he said, I would sometimes spend $2.50 at a, at a cafe reading a book and sitting for hours or chatting with someone. And then we would make a meal together. And that would be the day. And the cost of simply being was less. And so we see this relationship between excessive labor demands and excessive consumption demands. And they go and they wrestle with one another high and high and high and high. And it never stops 
Because when do the engines of capitalism ever get enough? God's economy is one that is an economy of enough. God says, we have enough. And when we don't, it is because there is a distribution error. There is a holiness problem when we are trying to extract more and more and more. The final thing I want to share from you from, from Brueggemann's work is he really breaks down. Just before the people of Israel are given this command to rest, they are in captivity and they see the logics of a different kind of economy. In Exodus 12, these are some excerpts of the Pharaoh, who is this production manager, talking about the Israelites. Why are you taking people away from their work? Get, your, get to your labor. Yet you want them to stop working. You shall no longer give people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. How often are we in the workforce told to do more, produce more with less? over and over and over again. That's actually at the heart of the competitive nature of capitalism. It is pushing everyone to do more with less than their competitor over and over again, ad infinitum. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. And it goes on and on this extractive manager, the economy that says you will produce more with less, more with less, more with less, and if you ever rest, you are lazy. Anybody ever just like feel that Pharaoh figure completely internalized? Who has a Pharaoh in their own head saying, you've got to do more, you've got to do more. I know you don't have enough, but you've got to do even more. And if you rest, man, you are lazy. That is a voice, that is a set of voices, that is a culture I grew up with. And I have to tell you right now, it is evil. That is a voice of the devil. That is a voice of the economy of the world. And God's economy the voice of God says, enough, enough. There is enough. There is enough for you. You have done enough. In fact, your rest does not need to be earned. Your rest is holy. You rest because you are human. You are human because you are made in my image. I am God, I rest. And so we rest together and it is good. Rest is a holy act. But it is resistance. It is divine rebellion against the empire and systems of the world when we push back and say we all ought to be able to rest. We all ought to be able to rest. And we will fight those systems that have unequal distribution. The last prophet I want to share with you today is a woman named Alexis Pauline Gums, and she wrote a book I adore that Cameron thinks is like really weird. It's called Undrowned, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. And Gums 
reflects on all of this marine life, which I think is really holy and beautiful, right? Because we hear from God that even the wild creatures need to rest. And perhaps because they have a step or two removed from uh, human capitalism, they're not completely removed, they're deeply impacted by it, but because they are a bit removed, perhaps the animals have something to teach us about the patterns of creation and how to rest. Now, Alexis Pauline Gums does not, is not precious about this. It's not like rest is easy and rest is for all. She writes about the need for rest and where it comes from. And one of my favorite essays she has talks about how, talks about uh, gray seals and pusa seals. She says, a mother gray seal loses 13 pounds a day while nursing. A mother seal has brought new life into this earth and loses 13 pounds a day to sustain that life for three to four weeks and over the course of that three to four weeks loses more than 80% of her body weight and then stays out to sea out far away resting replenishing for weeks at a time the pusa seals after they have given birth, dive 10 times deeper than they do other, other, under other circumstances. They stay down and away and alone for two to six times as long as they normally would. And despite all of our research and curiosity, human beings actually don't know what they are doing down there. We don't even know. But we understand it to be a kind of rest. And Gums reflects, this is the proportional cost of intimate creation. She's referencing that 13 pounds, that 80% of yourself taken in order to sustain new life. This is how much it takes. This is what we give to the world we are growing. Where we give it from and how we maintained. I am stunned by the math, she says. But reflecting on the ability to rest, the, the, the cycles of giving and taking, of nourishing and being nourished, she says, I must be made new because I gave you my all. And if I say my love is a renewable resource, then that would mean that my renewal is love. My renewal is sacred. We are called to create and to co-create with God. We have a task at hand and it is beautiful and holy and wild. It grows like mustard. It grows like wildfire. But the way that it grows depends on renewal and rest. Not just for some, but for all. How are you called to divest from capitalism and lay your ass down? Rest is resistance. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, it is so hard sometimes to imagine the kingdom, to imagine living in your economy of enough. Will you please give us eyes to see, ears to hear the ways the kingdom is breaking in here and now, the ways that we do have enough, that we can divest from the logics of scarcity and fear and God, where those logics are too ingrained, where those systems are too powerful, where people are unable to rest, where there is not enough, 
Give us the strength and courage while we labor to labor towards freedom for all and rest, abundance, enough for all creation. In your name, amen.